I'd love to introduce uh, our next speaker this morning. Joanna Cullicutt is uh, an old friend. She um, uh, teaches quite often for us at the St. Paul's Theological Centre. She's an associate lecturer with us. Uh, she's uh, an Anglican priest. She's uh, uh, and her main role at the moment is a senior lecturer in psychology at Heathrop College in the University of London, which is just uh, a little way up the road uh, here. And she teaches um, a course, a master's course in the psychology of religion there. Um, and she worked for many years as a consultant clinical psychologist in the NHS. She's also studied theology, so she comes with a lot of experience both in psychology and, uh, and theology in putting these two worlds together. So I'm really delighted to, uh, that she's here today to be able to speak to us on the uh, theme of growing up into Christ as uh, some insights from psychology. So please give a warm welcome to Joanna Collicott. So thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you today, and I was asked to talk a bit about the process of how we move forward in our Christian faith, bringing insights from psychology together with um, Christian perspectives on the whole process. And the title, Growing Up Into Christ, is something, it's, it's, it's kind of um, close to my heart in lots of ways. Uh, there is, I noticed in the bookshop there's lots of copies of my latest book on sale. It has a very boring title. Um, it's called Jesus and the Gospel Women. That wasn't the title that I chose for it, but my publishing, um, my editor at SBCK wouldn't allow me to have the title that I initially chose, which was Little Girl, Get Up. Um, I'm very interested in um, moving upwards, getting up and growing up, and the story of Jairus' daughter in relation to that. Um, but today I'm going to talk about the pattern of growing up into Christ. And can I have the next slide, please? And the talk's going to fall into four sections. A section on perfection, a section on orientation, a section on reorientation and turning, and then a final section on growth. And I will move quite quickly through all of these because I, I thought I had a bit more time than I actually have got. Um, so I hope it won't be too fast-paced for you. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, so this is the first section on perfection. Next slide, please. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5:48. That word that's translated perfect in a lot of our English versions of the Bible, teleos, can, means perhaps most fundamentally to be complete, is translated, as I've said, perfect, but also whole or fully grown and mature. So the idea of growing up. And teleos and cognates, related words, are mentioned, and this is a typing error of mine, at least 30 times in the New Testament. It's a common notion. Um, eight plus times as an adjective, more often as a verb, occasionally as a noun. Um, the verb thing, I think, is quite important. There's a sense of process going on here, becoming perfect rather than a finished state. I've got some examples for you from Matthew 19. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says to him, I've kept the law since my, my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, 
so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And as I said on the slide, the notion of perfection is most concentrated in the letter to the Hebrews, where it's all about the work of Christ, not so much the work of the disciple. Um, Hebrews 2 verse 10, a really interesting instance of it. It was fitting that God, for whom and through all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So making perfect here is a dynamic process. Really interestingly to me, Jesus isn't perfect. He is made perfect. Or perhaps put it a better way, his work is completed through suffering, relating, I think, very clearly to what we hear in John's Gospel as Jesus lies pinned to the cross, finally saying, it is finished. Tetelestai, same word. Next slide, please. So, the Christian life is, to use a technical term, telic. And here's an example from Philippians. It's goal-directed. It's about completeness. It's about pressing on. Not that I have already obtained this, or have already reached the goal, tetelioi, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And the context in Philippians tells us, and this again resonates with the the quote from Hebrews I've just given you, is that the goal is to become like Christ in his sufferings, so as to be like Christ in his resurrection. Can I have the next slide, please? So we get on to some psychology now. And thinking about the Christian life as telic, that is goal-directed, I want to just briefly outline to you three psychological approaches to goal-directed behavior. The first is Dan McAdams' model of personality, a three-level model. The second is Bob Emmons' idea of the psychology of ultimate concerns, which is a multi-level model, but I'll explain it to you as a three-level model for simplification. And the third, Carver and Shire's control process account of affect, that is um, emotional tone, feelings. Again, that's a three-level model, so there's a kind of funny Trinitarian theme running through that. Can I have the next slide, please? Okay. Okay. Do you, want to, do you would like me to go back to the previous slide? Okay. Well, for each of these, I'm going to unpack them now. So in a sense, that's just an orientation for you. Okay. So first one of these... McAdams' levels of personality description. McAdams talks about thinking about human personality at three levels. Level one is the idea of personality traits. Are you an introvert, an extrovert? Are you uh, neurotic? Are you conscientious? All those kind of things. These are decontextualized. You carry these traits around with you, where at whatever your context, they are basic temperamental givens about you. They're things that you have. 
Level two is about your strategies and plans, your personal projects, your personal strivings, what you're consciously trying to do characteristically most of the time, your personality as doing, the goal-directed nature of your life. And the level three is around your identity, your life narrative, the story that you build about yourself from constructing from level one and level two so that you have a kind of coherent account of who you are. You're this kind of person and you do these kind of things, you pursue these kind of goals, you kind of make your personhood. Next slide, please. This is the second of those three theories. This is Bob Emmons' theory of ultimate concerns. And he's borrowed this term, ultimate concern, from Paul Tillich. It's a theological term, but he's changed it to become more psychological in nature. And he talks about three levels of uh, behavior, action programs, just basic things you are doing. I'm standing here speaking to you now. That's an action program. Personal strivings, the next level up, if you like, from the bottom. So I've started with three, the action program. Personal strivings are what you're, you're generally trying to do. I'm generally trying to communicate about um, the relationship between psychology and theology in the context of ministry and building up the people of God. Level one, your ultimate concern the thing that's really driving you, and people will have several ultimate concerns. And these may be uh, what we would recognize as spiritual in a very broad kind of way, um, but they may be to do with basic human needs, like the need to be loved, uh, the need to belong, and so on. They may be more existential. And levels two and three are basic, goal-directed, what you're generally trying to do, and they relate to ultimate concerns. And I have the next slide, please. Are, they, are the slides going slower now? Are you more comfortable with, with that? Okay. This is Carver and Shire's model of um, emotion. And this is, again, somewhat similar to the ones I've shown you, but are different in other respects. Um, I'm going to start at the bottom again with number three. They have action programs too, things that you do. At level two, they talk about principles. And at level one, about an idealized self-image. So according to their theory, we do a lot of stuff. We do that stuff to conform to general principles by which we live our life. So I go and visit my neighbor who is disabled. And I do that because one of my life principles is to be kind to the people around me. And that principle is derived from an idealized self-image. I would like to be a kind person. Uh, and again, levels two and three, the principles and the living out of those principles are similar to um, McAdams' level uh, three. Sorry, level two. And one, the idealized self-image, is similar to McAdams' level three, which is this idea of an identity of a life narrative, this idea of we are understanding of who we are. And just one more thing to say at the bottom of that slide about this model. It's very hierarchical. They feel that um, what we do is very strongly related to our life principles, and our life principles are 
very strongly tied to our idealized sense of who we are. And if things start to go wrong, if we um, fail to achieve our goals at any of these kind of levels, we get distressed. And if things are going well, we feel good. And when mismatches occur, you get all sorts of patterns of distress. Um, And as we approach our goals, we feel better about ourselves and about the world. And a key thing about this model is to do with the speed at which we approach our goals. Sometimes we can approach a goal almost too fast for it to be comfortable. If we're approaching a goal that's important to us and we're going too slowly, we can get frustrated, um, we can get anxious. If we can't seem to have any chance of achieving our goals, we can get depressed. And the closer our goals are related to our idealized self-image, the more hot our emotional tone is if we can't connect with our goals. Can I have the next slide, please? Now, the next slide tries to put these models together in a way because they're all saying something that's rather the same, but each is distinctive, um, which is that there are a number of levels at which we are striving in life to achieve things. There's the basic everyday level at the bottom of actions, just stuff we are doing. You know, I make a cup of coffee for me in the morning and I might make one for my husband as well kind of thing. Um, The next level up is to do with principles, plans, strategies, goals that we're trying to live out. And above those, there's something at a higher order that might be conceived of as a story by which we live our life, that our actions fit into, or an ultimate concern to which we're striving, or something to do with the way that we see ourselves as an idealized person. Next slide, please. Now, this slide is about how these goals at all these levels relate to each other and give us a sense of well-being. And this is an account which um, draws on a lot of research and suggests some things that, in many respects, are kind of obvious, but it's helpful, I think, sometimes to um, unpack them a bit. Firstly, this notion of self-concordant goals. We feel better in general, we have a better sense of well-being if at every level there is a clear relationship between what we are doing and our sense of identity and who we are. And that's a kind of vertical coherence, if you like. So if what I'm doing connects with who I think I am, I feel good. If what I'm doing doesn't connect with who I think I am, or my ultimate concern, I feel uneasy, uncomfortable, and at the end of the day, I may feel very miserable. It's very common with people who are unhappy in their work settings, for instance. One of the things that perhaps in the end makes people change jobs. Secondly, congruent goals. If our goals are, as it were, coming spontaneously out of who we are, rather than being imposed because by law we have to do certain things, or because we are driven by guilt, or because we have a sense of duty, if our goals feel as if they flow from a sense of who we are, we feel better and more fulfilled. And lastly, and this is one I really kind of empathize with, coherent goals. If we are doing 10 million different things and they don't really connect very strongly with each other, we can feel really quite distressed and disconnected. And in a sense, the ideal life is for 
the, our goals to flow into each other in a way that makes sense so that our lives isn't compartmentalised up into bits and fragmented and sometimes conflicting areas of activity. And I think I've quoted Ephesians 4, and I'll come on to Ephesians 4 in much more detail shortly. Um, that's a lovely picture of the body of Christ where every part is knit together and works beautifully in a coordinated and a horizontally coherent way, if you like, in order to relate to the head. So there's also a vertical coherence. What the body does relates to the head, but also what the body does is in um, cooperation uh, with each part of the body, not in competition or conflict. Can I have the next slide, please? So we're now going to move on to the next part of the talk, which is on orientation. Can I, um, yeah. And this is a move, in a sense, from this psychological, gener generic account of striving towards something up there, uh, an idealized self-image, an ultimate concern, a life story, to the ultimate concern for the Christian and, it's, and Tillich talks about the ultimate concern, not ultimate concerns. And it seems to me that at the heart of the Christian life, there is this orientation. And it's fundamentally expressed in prayer. And we can think of prayer as something we do intentionally, although sometimes we do get caught up into it. But as soon as we are praying, it's, it's an intentional stance. And it's a God-directed stance. It's an orientation there's a listening to God, and there's a responding to God in word and action. And I've quoted you the first stanza of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew. The beginning of that prayer is a kind of orientation to the Father. It's an orientation to his kingdom values. It's an orientation to his will. It's an act of, if you like, setting your compass can I have the next slide, please? Turning, which I've just done. Because of the nature of the Christian life, because we're fallen people, and perhaps just because of the way the world is, the Christian life is not like this, where I look at God and he looks at me, and it's, and it's forever an ecstatic union. It's a constant turning around and turning and returning and coming back. Um, and the goal-directedness of behavior is about the orientating and reorientating of our stance towards God. And this turning, metanoia, which is often translated or thought of as repentance, um, not conversion, involves this notion of directional turning, a change of heart, a turning from sin, a change of way. It's directional, it's reorientation, it's a continual process, and it involves not only a kind of geographical turning back, but a, a time-related turning, a re remembering of the way things used to be. If you think about the story of the prodigal son, remembering is a big part of the turning of that young man in that story. Can I have the next slide, please? And in order to reorientate, we need to adopt a change of perspective. And where this change is radical and sudden, it's often associated with something that psychologists call epiphanic experiences. Again, bo borrowing the theological language of 
epiphany. An epiphanic experience is something where you shift quantally into a new and utterly convincing way of seeing the world. And that will include greater clarity in relation to the goals that you need to pursue. And these kind of quantal shifts are understood to occur as a natural part of childhood development, especially the shift from, in child development that seems to occur at a certain age from an egocentric worldview, a view centered on my perspective, to the inhabitants of multiple perspectives and the development of a theory of mind, that is, an understanding that other people have a point of view and an ability to inhabit that point of view. So a shift around in perspective. Can I have the next slide, please? The next slide is a picture. For those of you who are teachers and have had, study, had to study Piaget, you'll recognize this kind of experiment. This is a famous experiment where the child is asked, tell me what the doll sees. And children below a certain age tell the experimenter what they can see. They're not yet able to inhabit the point of view of the other person. Uh, and they get to a certain point where they acquire this kind of skill. And this is what epiphanic experiences enable us to do. They enable us to inhabit a different perspective on a scene, and that gives us then a different sense of direction. Now, the next slide, please. We see things differently. And this kind of shift is characteristic of scientific breakthroughs. And I've chosen the word breakthrough quite consciously. I'll come back to that shortly. I've given the examples. Again, those of you who studied chemistry will ad nauseam have heard the story of Kekulé discovering the um, structure of the benzene ring. And there's all sorts of um, <coughs> apocryphal stories. Was he on top of a London bus? Had he fallen asleep in front of his fire? Whatever happened, he had a sudden shift and realized uh, this molecular structure. Similar things seems to have happened with Darwin. But this shift to seeing things differently is, as we know, a dominant theme in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament. Um, Isaiah 6, I've quoted this notion of people seeing and not perceiving. And um, this idea that in order to turn and be saved, people need to start perceiving. And in John 9, the story of a man born blind who gradually, gradually, gradually has his eyes opened and starts to see physically, but much more importantly, starts to see who Jesus is. He starts that story calling him, well, there was this man, and he ends that story by kneeling in worship at the feet of Jesus. There's a gradual turning that goes on through that account. Can I have the next slide, please? The conditions psychologically for epiphanic experiences, the things that set the scene for metanoia, for turning, I think are quite well understood. And we can think of these conditions as the proximal conditions for turning. They don't tell us why God chooses to act at a particular point to turn a person uh, and reveal himself. They don't tell us the ultimate cause, but they tell us something about the proximal mechanisms involved. Developmental crises are points in our life when we get a new perspective on things. Adolescence is an obvious one. Adolescence is a key time when people come to faith. Midlife crisis in our culture would be another one. Both of these points are kind of much more extended in Western culture um, than they might be in, in other parts of the world. But I have quoted Luke's account of Jesus lost in the temple. Well, there's a radical shift 
uh, in the way he sees the world and expresses um, himself in relation to that. I'll show you a picture very quickly in a minute to, to do, perhaps bring that home. Second point, major cognitive incongruity challenged the way we see the world. Parables, very, very powerful at doing that uh, for us. I'll come on to that in more detail shortly. Finally, outright trauma. Trauma acts or is a condition that enables people to move into a new way of seeing the world. And I've given you as an example there what happens to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul has a very, very traumatic experience on the road to Damascus, and it's part of a process of him seeing the world in a completely new way. Um, The reference at the end of that slide is to a book which is about the psychology of quantal change, what happens to people when they suddenly see the world in a different kind of way, often in the context of trauma and challenge in their lives. Can I have the next slide, please? This is, I'll show you very briefly. Some of you may know this picture. It's not a bit hard to see. It's Holman Hunt's um, finding of the saviour in the temple. The only thing I want to say about it is we're short of time, um, and it's a wonderful picture to kind of ponder on, is that Jesus is in this picture being held by his mother's uh, arm and by his father's foot. They are looking at him. He is seeing something very different. He's looking out of the picture at, at you. Um, there's a depiction there of an epiphany on his part. And there's an awful lot else going on, but because of lack of time, I won't pause here. Can I have the next slide, please? This is another picture by Holman Hunt, more famous, I think, called The Awakening Conscience. The composition of this picture is almost identical to the composition of the picture of the finding of the saviour in the temple. You have somebody looking out at the picture, What she's looking at is actually reflected in the mirror behind her. So we, the viewer, can see what she's looking at. She's looking into the light from the dark. This woman is a kept woman in a Victorian um, house which has been bought by her lover who is seated at the piano. Uh, She's been sitting on his knee in her underwear. Something catches her attention in the garden and she gets up. Crucially, she arises and she looks and she starts to see things differently. Uh, The first picture is of a developmental crisis. The second picture is very different. It's of a a person who's in a life of sin who starts to remember and recall that things might be different and is moved upwards by doing it. Can I have the next slide, please? Very briefly, parables. Just the last point on that slide. The nature of the parables Jesus tells is that they are incongruous, paradoxical, and ambiguous And if we hear the parables of Jesus as comfortable and as confirming what we already know, then we are not hearing the parables of Jesus because they are designed to shock us into seeing the world in a different way. They are meant to move us into an epiphany. That is the nature of these parables. Uh, Jeremy Duff and I have written a lot about this in the book that is on the um, slide, Meeting Jesus. Can I have the next slide, please? Trauma. Trauma uh, was the last thing on my list of psychological conditions that predispose us to have epiphanic experiences. The nature of psychological trauma is that at a deep level that involves shattering our assumptions about what we think about ourselves and the way that we view the world. 
Just one, again, I'll give you a biblical example of a shattered assumption about the self, um, would be Peter, who has a belief that he is strong, that he will follow Jesus to death. And that assumption is violated when he finds himself denying Jesus. And if you look at the Passion narratives, the impact on Peter appears to be hugely, hugely traumatic. He weeps. Um, All sorts of beliefs about the self and the way that the world is are shattered as a result of trauma. And I think it's accurate to describe this kind of shattering of assumptions as a breaking in of a reality about the way that things are. And I've put in a fancy point underneath that that perhaps it offers us a glimpse of the eschatological imagination. But what I mean by that is, what I understand eschatology to mean is the breaking into our time and space by Christ in his incarnation and in, in his resurrection. That is a traumatic breaking in. Everything is different. A reality from another realm almost starts to come into where we are. There is a breakthrough going on just as there is a scientific breakthrough phenomenon. Trauma, and it's no accident that the life and death of Jesus is a very traumatic story, um, is a way in which, through which God can speak to us because it shifts us into a way of seeing the world differently. Trauma is central to accounts of the journey to Emmaus, where people are escaping from the aftermath of the most traumatic event ever, that is the crucifixion of Christ. And I've already mentioned it's central to the story of the road to Damascus, where we have somebody who's attempting to avoid trauma that is inevitably waiting for him. I think Paul knows this um, and doesn't avoid the trauma. And in both accounts, Emmaus and Damascus, the protagonists get up, if you read those accounts carefully, they arise And they change direction. In Emmaus, the disciples go back to Jerusalem. They turn. In Paul's journey, he goes on to Damascus, but he ends up somewhere in Damascus that he wasn't planning to go. The final point on that slide, which seems to have disappeared. uh, Thank you. Post-traumatic growth is a phenomenon that psychologists have identified in the last 10 years or so, where they've suddenly caught up with the fact that although trauma is a terrible, terrible thing and causes us untold suffering, there is also this odd phenomenon that people seem to report that they grow in the context of trauma, that new opportunities open up for them, that their appreciation of life is enhanced, they appreciate each day, that they grow closer to others who have shared the trauma with them, that they find out they were stronger than they thought they were, and that in some way their spiritual side is nurtured, enhanced sensitized. So can I have the next slide, please? We're just moving on now to growth. This next passage, I won't pause on it too long. It's from Ephesians 4. It's a great favorite passage of mine in describing what's going on in the Christian life. Uh, The Christian life seen as a community, uh, which parallels what we understand the Christian life to be for the individual. I've already mentioned This passage talks about coherent goals, about goals that are concordant with an identity with Christ as the head of the body. Um, It talks about, in the second part of the paragraph, about a renewing of your mind and seeing things differently. It talks about a shift of perspective, an epiphanic shift of perspective. And towards the end, it talks about a change of self as the process of Christian growth. Can I have the next slide, please? 
Research into the psychology of people following their conversion seems to show that personality traits, the sort of things in McAdam's uh, model, which are the lowest level of personality, don't really change. But what changes are people's goals, their orientation. Um, and in New Testament terms, there's a reorientation or an orientation Godwards. The principles flow out of this, that virtues come because the Christian is orientated towards God. And this intrinsic uh, connection is described using the metaphor of spiritual fruit. And relatively little, I think I've put on the slide almost nothing, which is a bit of an overstatement. Relatively little is said about action programs, about what you actually do, how you, how you live out in action these virtues. That work has to be done by the Christian community in its context, orientated towards Christ, developing spiritual fruit in the spirit, but struggling with action programs. What does it mean to be kind, loving, chaste, generous? Can I have the next slide, please? How do we live out a Godward orientation? One way of thinking about this is as that we are following Christ. And this is the image used a lot by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. That our idealized self-image that I talked about at the beginning becomes identified with Christ. We want to be like Christ. Christ is the pioneer to whom we look. Christ is the one who makes our faith whole. And Christ is the one who holds together trauma, death, shame, and post-traumatic growth of the ultimate sort, resurrection, raising. Can I have the next slide, please? Another way of understanding Godward orientation, however, is not just following Christ as our leader, who we try to live like, but receiving Christ into an I-Thou relationship experiencing what it means to be known by God. And then what flows from that is the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit. And the image there I've given you is um, Jesus' words in John's Gospel. So starting to draw towards a close. Can I have the next slide, please? I think in the Christian journey there is a dialectic between persevering in the race and bearing persevering in the race and bearing fruit that is a, 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 a balance between striving after our goal in Christ Jesus and naturally allowing fruit to bear itself in our lives and in parallel with that a balance between following Christ as our model and receiving Christ into our lives as our Lord. And prayer, that orientation towards God, can be seen, and this is something I kind of talk to my parishioners about and give them free Mars bars when I do it, can be seen as work, rest, and play. The work is about striving, about praying when we don't feel like praying, about praying because we're commanded to pray, about doing the work that we're called to do. The resting and playing is about relaxing into God, relaxing into the spirit, having fun. All of those things are important. Can I have the next slide, please? 
bear fruit worthy of repentance, says John the Baptist. Some things I want to say just resonate a little bit in the, with the session I was in before I stood up here, and then I'll, I will stop speaking so we have time for questions, I think. Um, the image of fruit is hugely, hugely important. I've already talked about fruit growing naturally from our connection with Christ, but some things to bear in mind about fruit. That there is a delay between the planting of the seed and the harvest. We need to allow ourselves time. We need to allow other people time. We shouldn't judge processes and people prematurely. Secondly, there's a process of transformation at work. A seed may not look very promising, but it can develop into something amazing. Unpromising folk can yield amazing fruit. And we shouldn't be misled by first impressions. And then this last point, on which I'll I'll stop, I think, to give us time to talk, is that there is a deep connection with our past selves. And there's a radical leaving behind of our past selves in the Christian life. And they stand in tension with each other. We have Paul's talk of leaving the past behind and straining forwards. Um, But we also have Jesus' call to Peter, which touches me very greatly, where he calls Peter away from fishing fish, but he doesn't call him away from being a fisherman. He just says, just change your goal. You were fishing fish. Bring that into your life in the kingdom. Hugely touching and hugely important. For that reason, I've got the, um, the nets with the little fishes on my ordination stole because I feel I carry who I was as a psychologist into my life as an ordained minister. And so we need to respect both processes in people. The need to leave behind old baggage and the need for God to transform what we bring into our Christian life, our, if you like, our personality traits, our skills, and so forth. Now, my last two slides were about more about recognizing fruit and about spiritual gifts, but I'm going to stop there, I think, so we just have a bit of time because I know we've got uh, questions, both for me and for Rob. So, thank you.